the word of the Lord this morning comes from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, counted all joy. I think you were missing a few things, all right? So James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, counted all joy, my brothers, when you, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given, him, given to him. But let him ask in faith and with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Amen. Let us pray for the word, and we'll get started. Father, they are, they, this, we are before your word, and we are about to begin the study of James. Um, James deals with the issues that we face every day. James deals with uh, the sorrows and also the relationship issues that we face every day in this life. And James is, and the, and the reason why James wrote this is so that we will know whether our faith is genuine or not. So, Father, we pray that as we study these words this morning, may you give us the ability to discern our faith, to see whether our faith is real or not. And if, we, if it is real, let us, let us praise you. And if it is not, Father, let us repent and ask you for genuine faith. Father, we pray that you will reveal your will, that you will speak to us, Lord, that you will encourage us, that you will challenge us, and that you will give us new perspective on how we're supposed to live our lives. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are finally done with 1 Corinthians. I'm kind of sad because I really like 1 Corinthians. I wish I could just preach on 1 Corinthians for the rest of my career. Um, I really do. It just it was phenomenal. But now we're into the epistle of James. And there's many reasons why I chose James. Um, and it's because, one of, the, one of the reasons is because James is perhaps the most practical book in the New Testament, right? Where 1 Corinthians is the mixture of like really heavy theology and practical, practical considerations. James is all practical considerations. It deals with how we live our daily lives, right? There is no... There isn't anything part of James. It's a short book. There's only five chapters. And there isn't anything in James on its face that deals with deep theological issues. But there are theological issues in the underlining thing. But on its face, it doesn't deal much with theological issues. It's a very practical book, right? And Hyo is a big fan of practicality, so I'm doing this for Hyo. If you're challenged by why I chose James, blame Hyo. I do it for Hyo. But... The book of James is not only a book that gives instructions of how we are to practically live our daily lives. The book of James also reveals what genuine faith looks like. 
or the main purpose of the gospel of the epistle of James, it is to reveal, it is to draw a picture of what genuine faith, what real faith, not fake faith, but a real faith looks like. Uh, my primary source as I go through this epistle, the commentary that I use, is by this gentleman named D. Edmund Hebert, right? And this is what he says. This is the first introduction. This is the first sentence of that commentary. This is what Dr. Hebert says. The epistle of James demands that Christian faith must be functional. A living faith is a working faith. The author's central claim, central aim is to challenge the readers to test the validity of their faith. So Hebert is saying one of the main reasons why James wrote this is to challenge the Christian to see whether their faith is genuine or not. Because the concern is that in the church there are people with counterfeit faith. And the warning and the and the warnings that God God gives in the New Testament, God gives a lot of warnings to people to, to test to see whether their faith is genuine or not. Because at the judgment day, Jesus, in Matthew especially, tells us over and over again, at the judgment day, what God will do is he will separate people. He will separate people. He will separate the Christians, the churchgoers. And he will separate those between those who are genuinely genuine followers of Christ and those who are not. At the judgment day, the separation is not only between those who believe and those who don't believe, but he will separate those people who are in the church to see whether they're truly, whether they truly, whether they are true sheep or whether they are goats. And you see this over and over again in Matthew. For example, uh, in the parable of the sheep and goat, Matthew twenty-five. Like I said, God, at the judgment day, among the people who claim to be his people, God will, sep- God will separate between those who are true sheep. And those who are goats. Goats kind of look like sheep, I suppose. I don't know anything about farming. But they have a similar characteristics as sheep. But they weren't really sheep. They were goats. So God will distinguish between the genuine and the counterfeit. Matthew, Matthew chapter, chapter 7. Jesus says, many will say on that day, the judgment day, Lord, Lord, look what I have done in your name. I have prophesied, I have driven out demons, I have even healed for your name. So these people genuinely believed that they were sheep because of all these things they did for the Lord. But the Lord will say, I do not know you. Once again, the motif that on the judgment day, he will separate the sheep from the goats, the true disciples and the fakers. So one of the purpose of the, gospel, the epistle of James is to see whether you are, you are a true sheep or not. And if you're not a true sheep, repent and ask for salvation before it's too late. I understand that this, isn't, this is very challenging. And I understand all of us were raised in the church Maybe not all of us, but most of us were raised in the church. And it was drilled in our minds that we were Christians. Right? So, like, 
I remember like 10 years ago, when I was serving at the other church, I visited their elementary school service. And the Sunday school teacher asked them, who loves Jesus? They all raised their hands. Who wanted to go to heaven? They all raised their hands. Like first graders. I mean, what first grader is theologically stood enough not to raise their hands? Of course they, love, they want to say they love Jesus, and of course they say they want to go to heaven. But they never question their faith, whether their faith is genuine. They're not able to when they're that age. But unfortunately, if you're raised in the church environment, you just continually assume that your faith is genuine, even though it may not be. So James is telling you the way, so James deals with very practical things, issues that we face every day, like trials, like way you speak, you know, the type of relationships that you have. James deals with very practical matters. And James is saying, the way that you will know that your faith is genuine is how do you live out the everyday realities of your life? Once again, James deals with very practical everyday realities of life. And James is saying, the way you live your everyday life is a clear sign whether your faith is genuine or not. I think all of us are tempted to think that we're Christian because we agree with abstract theological ideas. James is saying, no, 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 no. Yes, abstract theological ideas are important. But it is how those ideas are played out in in our everyday life that determines whether your faith is real or not. The theme of James is James chapter 2, verse, seven, verse 17. So also, faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. James is saying in chapter 2, if your faith is not accompanied by genuine works, then your faith is no faith. And he speaks to this within the context of a church setting, where there is a sister who are, who are in need, and the brothers of that church said, Sister, I know you're financially poor, but I will pray for you, sister. And yet they don't do anything to meet her needs. James is saying, despite what you publicly proclaim to be, if you're not helping out the brother or sister in need, that's evidence that you don't have work, which is evidence that your faith is not real. So it's a practical book, but it's also a very challenging book. Right, so I pray that as we go through this, and I have no idea how long it will take, five chapters. How long can five chapters take? Maybe a year, probably, knowing me. But it is always with this understanding, two understandings in mind. It is a very practical book of how you're supposed to live your Christian life, but also it reveals whether your faith is genuine or not. Right? All right, so that's have those two things in mind as we begin. Let's go over the first verse. James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is the author of the book of James? James, right? But who is James? There is the disciple James, right? One of the 12, one of the early, one of the 12 disciples. But that, this, the James who wrote this, the, the epistle of James is not the disciple James. Church tradition says that this epistle, the, the, James, is written by 
James, who is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was conceived immaculately, right? Like, like um, Mary was, gave birth. It was an immaculate conception. Joseph, her husband, didn't have anything to do with the birthing process, right, of the, you know, of the, of the embryo creation process, right? So Jesus was born naturally yet miraculously. We all understood, right? Anyone not understand that? Okay, then ask, talk to Pastor Ujina about immaculate conception and why it's important, right? Pastor Ujina, have that, that, that answer for you. So Jesus was born immaculately, miraculously, but Mary and Joseph, after they got married, also had other children born naturally. So Jesus had half-brothers, right? Jesus had brothers, physical brothers. And James is one of them. Let's just think about it. James, the brother of Jesus. This James saw Jesus as, as when Jesus was a little boy. He grew up with Jesus, right? Maybe, I don't know, they were fighting over, like, you know, you know like who, who gets the big portion of the meat when they're eating or something. So he was, he was a very realistic, everyday relationship. And now this brother of Jesus is, tell, is calling Jesus his Lord, and James is saying, not only is Jesus Lord, but Jesus is his master. Jesus, he is Jesus' slave. That's what servant here means, by the way. It's not just a waiter type of servant, but it is a bond servant. It is a slave. So Jesus is call, James is calling Jesus his brother Lord, and he is calling Jesus his master. Let's just think about this for a second. For those of you who have siblings, is it easy to think that your sibling is the Lord incarnate? Is it easy to call your sibling your master and your Lord? I know some of you siblings, and I know your relationship with some of your siblings, and I don't think that's possible for you, nor is it possible for me, right? Because in our minds, in, in our minds, our siblings are the people that we grew up with, and we have a certain image of our siblings. Look, even though I'm this suave, confident lawyer guy right now, when I'm talking to my little brother over the phone like I did last week, I'm like, I've talked to him like when we were like 13. Right? I push his buttons like only I can, right? And he pushes my button like only he can. We have a, we have a history. And he keeps on telling me he can't believe that I'm a pastor. Right? He said, man, wait until your real congregation, the congregation knows the real you. They'll be shocked. And I said, I'm really glad that you're not here, man. Right? Because, right, it's true. Siblings, let's be honest, is in, more than anyone else, it's impossible to recognize that their other sibling is Lord and their master. I think James had the similar issue. John chapter 7. It says the brothers of Jesus did not believe that Jesus was God. In fact, the brothers of Jesus, physical brothers of Jesus, thought Jesus was out of his mind. I think James was one of them. Your older brother is going on Galilee and saying he's the Lord incarnate. 
I think perhaps James, there's a good chance that James thought that his older brother was out of his mind. Then how in the world can he say verse 1? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James had a natural view of who Jesus was. In his natural view of Jesus, there is no way James could confess this. But there has been a supernatural transformation. A supernatural, born-again, regenerate transformation. And when you are born again, how you see Jesus changes. Before James' conversion, I think maybe he thought James and him were like, Jesus and him were in similar levels because they, were both, they both had the same mom and dad. But after James got saved, there is a repositioning of his relationship with Jesus. He started out with a natural understanding of Jesus, but after salvation, there has been a repositioning in his view and understanding of who his brother is. That's what salvation is. A repositioning of our understanding of who Jesus is. All of us have souls. Or another way, all of us have minds. Mind is not just the brain, but mind is this concept of who you are outside of your physical body. We have a soul, a mind, if you will. And our minds are, are like, like, it exists outside of our brains. Okay, I'm going to get really nerdy and like, philosophical right now, but you've got to bear with me, Okay. The dominant thought in academia and in Hollywood and Netflix is this, that we are material beings. We're only material beings. The dominant thought of, academia, of Harvard, Netflix, and Amazon believe that we're only our brains. Everything that are about us is about the functioning brain. If you kill the brain, there is nothing, then we, we will cease to exist. Neurologists say that's different. This neuro neurosurgeon named, what's his name? Ryder Penfield, right? What a smart sounding name. He was a neurosurgeon and he did a lot of experience in the human brain. His hobby was brain research. Before he went to med school, he was a materialist. He thought all we were were our brains. So during his experiment, this is what he would do. He would open up people's brains. And by the way, brain has no pain. You can, you, if you press a part of your brain, you feel no pain. You feel pain through your nerves and vertebrae, right? So he gave localized anesthesia to people's vertebrae or whatever. But so the people were aware when he was operating on their brain, right? So he pressed one part of the brain, and lo and behold, the arm goes up, Right? He pressed another part of the brain, and the guy could remember, the patient can remember the things that he, have, he has forgotten about, right? So there's a, he manipulates the brain to do certain things. But Dr. Penfield realized no matter what he did to the brain, he couldn't affect the patient's ability to do math. He couldn't affect the patient's ability to want justice, want love, right? Want truth. 
He said, I've done everything. I've pressed every button in the brain to show how, you know, where this logic and things come from, and he couldn't find it. Penfield, after his research, realized there is something about our minds that is, not, that is above and beyond our brains. He became a dualist. He became a believer that we have souls. We have souls. God created us to have souls. All of us have it. Our souls are not random. Our souls are created to recognize certain order to things. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Our souls are designed to comply with the Ten Commandments. And what's commandment number one? There is one God. Our souls are recognized, meant to recognize that there's only one God. What sin does is it messes up this order that, we, that we're created for. What sin does is we don't recognize God's order. We think we're in the same position as God. That's what James was. was. When he first viewed Jesus, he thought Jesus, he viewed Jesus in a very natural, fallen kind of a way, not recognizing the fact that Jesus is a creator of his soul. After conversion, There's a repositioning. There is an understanding. There is a submissiveness to his understanding of who Jesus is. Are we with me? Are we all with me so far? Dan, are we with me? Right? That's what salvation looks like. Salvation is your minds, your souls, my mind, my soul's ability to recognize Jesus as God. A repositioning of our understanding of Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we once viewed Jesus in a natural way, but we don't do so any longer. Paul is saying before his conversion experience, he had a certain way of viewing Jesus. But after his conversion experience, he is submissive. His soul is is recognizing the fact that he needs to submit under Jesus because Jesus is God. Nerdy philosophy over. Why is this so important? It is important because before we talk about the practical issues that James deals with, we need to understand the only way that our souls can obey God is first to realize, is, is the, before we commit anything to God, we first need to recognize where our position with Christ is. Have your relationship with Christ, do you have a repositioned relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he truly your Lord? Are you truly under him? Consciously. If you don't have the repositioned relationship with the Lord, everything that James writes about, everything the Bible tells you how to live, it won't work. Look. Being raised in a Christian culture is important. It really is important. It's a blessing to be surrounded with the word of God, yeah? But the issue with being raised in the faith is you assume that you have a repositioned relationship with Christ, even though you don't. And we try all we can to obey God's commandment, but if we don't have this repositioned relationship with Christ, it's not going to work. I gave you, I'll tell you from my college example. College example. Pastor Wujin and I lived, like, was trained under similar, like, you know, 
college you know, methodology. And when, when I was younger, like, the college that I belonged to, the, youth, the group that I belonged to, stressed obedience and holiness. And we tried our best to be obedient and holy. But we failed miserably. And looking back, the reason we failed miserably is because none of us had a clear understanding of our position in Christ. We said that Jesus is our Lord. We said that we believe in the gospel. But our position with Christ was unsure. What was more important to us is what we do for his name. We did a crazy thing. Every Saturday morning, three-hour prayer meeting, screaming. That was so dumb. So dumb. Going out to the mall, evangelizing. That was good. Not studying Saturday, just living in church and doing ministry on a Saturday, even though I was a student. Right? That was dumb. We did so much for the Lord. There are a lot of my friends who started in engineering majors but switched over to psychology majors. I'm not dissing any psychology major, by the way. I'm a psychology minor. Love you, psychology majors. But a lot of the, my, my friends who were, started as engineers switched over to psychology. Why? Because it's an easier major. Let's be honest. It's an easier major than engineering. And they switched over to an easier major so that they will do ministry in the church when they're in college. Kind of dumb. They do all these things. It's what's done because they have a shallow positioning understanding of who Jesus was. And they did all they could for the Lord without a shallow under, with a shallow understanding of their position. You know what happened to the most of them? They fall away from the faith after they graduate from college. Before we talk about the practical considerations of James, it is important to analyze and realize where is your position in Christ? Where is it? What is your position? Who is Jesus to you in your practical, everyday life? If you don't have that solid foundation, position, the practical thing that James talked about, it's not going to work. Ya comprende? The reason why we do quiet times in the morning, it is so that to remind us of our position of our position in Christ. That's the number one, that's one of the main reasons why you do quiet times. Every morning you get up, you think that you're in the same position as Christ. How you think, how you experience things, how you feel, you think they're the same as Christ's commandment to you. But when you do your quiet time, when you meditate upon the word of God, when you meditate upon who he is, you are once again positioning yourself under him. And that's how you live for him. Are we all clear? Okay, clear? All right. I was worried about this part. Now we go to the fun part. So, the, so who wrote the epistle of James? James did. And who did he write to? I think, our, I think what we read this morning was, was cut. So he's, written, he's writing this letter to the, to the... Can you do verse 2? In verse 1, Paul is writing to, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1, please. He's, oh, no, that's missing too. He's writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered throughout the world, right? 
Yeah, it's there, guys. I think you guys just missed it, right? So he's written to the 12 tribes scattered in the world. The 12 tribes scattered in the world, he means Jewish Christians. He's writing this letter to the Jewish Christians who are scattered. They don't live in Israel anymore. They live within the Greco-Roman Empire. He's writing this letter to those brothers. Jews were, the, the, Israel was subjugated by Rome by the time that, you know, during Jesus' time and during James' time. And not all, so Jews are scattered all across the, of the Greco-Roman Empire, but Jewish Christians especially were not treated very well. It's one thing to be a minority in the Greco-Roman world. Jews were the minorities in the Greco-Roman world. They were, they were scattered all over the place, like Koreans all over the place. They were like scattered, Koreans are scattered all over the place, right? There are some, some of us are in Alaska, some of us are in Montana, like we're scattered all over the place. And then and the people who are scattered all over the place, they're not the majority of that, of, that, of that country. But not only was it bad to be a minority in the Greco-Roman Empire, being a Jewish Christian in the Greco-Roman Empire was especially difficult. You were a minority, you were a religious sect of a minority class in the Greco-Roman world. And there were challenges that the Jewish Christian faced. The Romans and the Greeks, they didn't think they were, they were special. The Jewish people certainly didn't think Christians were special. So they have to go through many difficult trials. So it is to them that James is writing this letter. What is the first thing that James teaches them? Right? About what is the first lesson James teaches them to these Jewish Christians who are scattered throughout the world? Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The very first thing that James teaches is count it, consider it all joy when you face, when you meet trials of various kinds. So be joyous when you meet trials of various kinds. First thing James teaches them. What is the trial of various kinds that James talks about in verse 2? There are, the Bible usually talks about two types of trials. Number one, the first type of trial is a trial of being a Christian. Remember, Jesus says the world will hate you because they hated me first, right? Second Peter, Peter talks about the suffering that we bear because we're connected to Christ. We, bear, we, we go through the sufferings of Christ. So there are certain pains that, we, that the Christians go through because of our unity with the Lord. Even now, people are persecuted because they are connected to the Lord. Last year, there are 340 million Christians living in places where they they experience high level of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. 340 million Christians out in the world face discrimination and persecution because of of their faith. 340 million. Almost the size of the U.S. population. Last year, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 
4,277 believers were detained without trial, arrested, and sentenced or, or imprisoned. So even today, there are costs of being a Christian. And the, the Bible clearly teaches, if you're connected with Christ, you will suffer because of your connection. That's one type of trial. The second type of trial is a trial that comes by the virtue of us living in a fallen body in a fallen world. And these can encompass everything that we go through. Trials that come from living in this, in this fallen life can, can involve having failing health, death or sickness of a loved one, troubled children, stressful job, unreasonable bosses and clients, being stuck in COVID, right? Being locked, locked in because of COVID. The Bible is clear. Reality of living this world, you will go through a lot of pain. Trials of various kinds encompasses these things. What are the trials that come, that, that is prevalent in your life right now? The other day, a couple of nights ago, all throughout the night, I dreamt that I messed up a case. I dreamt, and I go, and then I fell back to sleep, and I same dream. Man, don't you hate it? When you wake up, you think that nightmare will be over, but I fell asleep. It continued, and I got up, and I said, and I went back to sleep again, and it continued, and I just got up because my heart felt like it was stopping. I had a nervous attack when I was sleeping, thinking about the cases that I thought that I messed up, even though, you know, I never, I, I don't mess up cases. I'm, I'm awesome, right? So, like, there's, like, this nightmare of work. Huge burden. I hope my partners aren't listening. I love working for y'all, right? But let's be real. It's stressful, y'all. Right? Juggling clients and bosses and, and, and all these work. Once again, I love you, I love working for you, but man, oh man, right? It's a trial. That's my burden last week. That, the, the, the thing that I face at work, that's, it, it is included in James' description of trials of various kinds. I know some of you because I counsel some of you. And you're going through trials of various kinds. The trials that you're going through, trust me, that is part of James' description of trials of various kinds. We think there's like a spiritual trial and a physical trial, and we kind of think, kind of spiritualize the spiritual trial. No, no, no. James is encompassing everything that you go through. Whether it is, it is sickly, like, you know, sick parents, loneliness, Troubled children, failing businesses, unemployment, lack of health insurance. It encompasses everything. What is James's first command for those of us who are going through these trials? He says, count it all joy. Consider the fact that you're going through those trials a source of great joy, the source of happiest joy. Huh? 
When I go through, I love my clients, but difficult work, when I look at it, James is saying, oh, consider that trial a joy. These impossible trials that make your life so difficult right now, those trials that you think, if, you just, if those trials are lifted from me, then I'll be happy. Those trials, James is saying, consider it joy. Can you do that? Can you? How are we supposed to do that? The Bible, it's not clearly depicts the suffering that is involved in living in this world. Jesus wept when Lazarus, his friend, died. Job suffered much. Hebrews, it says, it isn't pleasant when God disciplines us. So clearly, the Bible understands the pain of human existence. But James is saying, in the midst of that pain, there could be joy. How? It depends on your perspective of how you view that trial. The best example is this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus up on the cross endured pain like no other, right? It says, I think in Mark, when Jesus died, he let out a loud scream, which is, an, which is a scream of agony. Up on the cross, he wasn't a stoic, oh, I can take it. He wasn't that way. He was in pain. He was in agony by the wrath being poured upon him. So the Bible clearly depicts the suffering of Christ. But Hebrews chapter two, 12 is saying, in the midst of that suffering, he also had joy. Joy in what? Joy in knowing what his suffering would accomplish, which is our salvation. Up on the cross, the joy that he felt was saving you and me, making you and me whole and sane and making, making us God's children. That's the joy that Christ had in the midst of his suffering. How do you have joy in the midst of your suffering? Perspective of what God is doing through those suffering. When you're going through trials, when I'm going through trials, we need to see our trials through the lens of God's, what God is going to do with those trials. You need to see your trials from the perspective of God. James reveals what those trials are, how God sees those trials. What are, what are those trials? Number one, let's go to verse two continually. He says, where is verse two, brothers? Kind it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
So what is God's design for the trials? For my stress at work? For your relationship with you, with, 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 with your loved ones? What is God's purpose of behind those trials? Number one, testing of your faith. That's what verse 3 says, right? That you know the testing of your faith. Trials are the testing of your faith, number one. When God introduces trials in your life, whether it is unemployment, failures, or my stressful job, he does it so that he'll test our faith. What is the definition of testing in verse 3? It is something, an instrument that is used to reveal what's truly real or not. That's That's the definition of testing. It's an instrument that God uses to reveal whether something is genuine or not. The trials that he gives you in your everyday reality, whether it is COVID lockdown or stresses at work or unemployment or whatever it is, it is to see whether you have genuine faith or not. It's to see whether what's really, what's really inside you. What does... The test, the trials of life. What does it reveal about, about your relationship with the Lord? What is it in what is in there? Is it bitterness, anger, resentment? Or is it God? Does your test reveal God? For the Christian. Every test, every trials of life, if you're a Christian, it reveals God. Job, at the end of his suffering, he, re- he saw God. One of the reasons that God gave me my law, law firm job, he didn't have to, but he did. And I always wonder why he gave it to me. Why do you give this to me? I always ask. Now I understand. And the reason why he gave me this law firm job is this. Behind every stress, every issue, every moment that I thought I was going to get fired, behind every problem that I face at work, I see God's deliverance. Miraculous things happen to me at work constantly. And after all that trial, I see God at work in my job. Even trials at work reveal God to me. My moral failures reveal God to me. When God lets me see what, what is really in me, it is clear why he needed to die for me. And I praise the gospel more. Behind your suffering, if you are a Christian, you will see God. If God is indeed in you. And when you see God at the end of your, uh, during your suffering, you will have joy and you will praise his name. But if you don't have God, when you, if you don't see God in your suffering, 
then perhaps, with all due respect and love, maybe your faith is not genuine. Testing of our faith brings joy, if you're a Christian, because it reveals God. Just because I see God in my suffering, it doesn't make my suffering any less painful, and that's true. Even though I am in pain, I see God, and my heart is joyous. Next day, I might go through the same suffering, but I, once again, I see God, and I'm, and I'm joyous. It's a repeat of that. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Testing of our faith brings joy if God is in you, because you will see him in your suffering. Paul's James says, consider joy when you go through various trials, not only because of the testing of your faith, also produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is, is in strength, endurance, strength of endurance. Strength that is able to last a long time. Endurance, enduring strength. I don't, you know, in the muscle guys, I don't. I could care less about a six-pack. I really don't care. But the type of athletes that I respect are the endurance runners, right? Iron marathon guys, right? Double iron, triple marathon guys. Netflix has a documentary about this one dude who did an Ironman contest every day for 30 days. So for every day, he ran 27 miles, swam one mile, and biked 50 miles. I don't know how, how many like, Ironman guys did it. He did it for 30 days every day. I admire that dude. Because he could last until the end. Endurance is a strength that will let you last, fight the good fight until the day you be with the Lord in this world. That's the endurance strength. And that strength is only developed through trials. You cannot have this enduring faith without going through various trials. You can't. Do you know what it takes to be an endurance athlete? You have to practice over and over and over again. You do. You can't wake up one day and say, I'm going I'm I'm to run an Ironman. You will die. You will, need to be, you will need to train. One guy, one YouTube guy that I follow, all he does is just like, shoot his Ironman training routine. He's preparing for an Ironman in Texas in like, you know, sometime next month. And he's just filming his training regimen. I am fascinated by what he does. He needs to do all these things so that he can win the race. Trials are like that. If you do not have trials, you will not be able to last long in, with your faith in this world. In, in, first, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is it Paul warns about Israelites who started out in Egypt towards the promised land, but they did not last. They failed. They died in the desert because they lacked endurance. What is the reason for your trial? To make you strong so that you will last. 
James 1 verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's a crown waiting for us if we finish the race. We can only finish the race if we're strong enough to finish. Trials are a means to make your faith real and strong. There is no way of making your faith strong and real unless you have to go through trials. We think, why can't just God tell me what to do? And I'll do it, and then I can. life is easy. No, human beings don't work that way. We need to go through trials to make us strong. When you see the trials of your life, even the very trials that you go through right now as the tools in which to make your, make your endurance strength stronger, when you have that kind of interpretation of your trials, you will find joy in your trials. Verse 3, verse 4, we're almost done. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 4 talks about endurance again, but it's interesting the way James expressed it. In verse 4, he says, let steadfastness have its effect. If you read the NIV, the NIV is saying, let steadfastness complete its work in you. So it is described, James is describing, there is this power called endurance working within you. There is this force called endurance working in you. That Force is the work of God. What James is saying in verse 4, I think he means this. He means when you are going through suffering, God is working in you to change things about you. God is working in you to make you stronger. Christian life is not God is saying, do this and leave it on our own. He doesn't do it. No. When we go through suffering, the power of God is in you working things out in you. And I experience this in my life. When I go through suffering, I go on long walks. And I, when, I, when I go on long walks, I think about the suffering, and I whine like a baby, and I say, why, why, why? And sometimes he tells me why. Did you know that? But all in all, as I'm whining and as I'm, but as I, as long as I'm looking at him through scripture, through sermons, through revelation, there is, I feel the working of God in me to make me endure the suffering. So when you're suffering, you're not alone. The power of God is working in you. Some of my brothers and sisters, when they suffer, they contact me, and I, I counsel through them, and I counsel them not because I'm a wise guy, but that's another way in which God is helping you through your suffering, through the church. God is at work in you when you suffer so that you will become stronger. You must be aware of that. When you suffer, be aware there's a power of God working in you. And I'm telling you, oftentimes when I, see, when I ask God, why do I have to suffer? He doesn't tell me exactly why I have to suffer. 
but he shows me that one of the benefits of me suffering. He does. And I'm greatly encouraged. We go through suffering. God does his work in us in endurance so that we may be perfect and complete. ESV says, so we may be mature. Going through trials is a means to, to our maturity. So when James sees the trials of life, he looks at it and he goes, ah, opportunity for, for, for it to reveal what is really in me, for God to build steadfast strength in me, and God to work within me to make me mature. Oh, suffering, every suffering, he sees it that way. That is how joy is done in your suffering. Am I making sense? Every suffering is this. God revealing what is in you. God making you stronger. God working in you to make you mature. The hard part of all this is when we suffer, we need to be disciplined enough to take that suffering and despite the crazy pain that we feel, take it under the microscope of God and looking at the direction of God when you're suffering. That's the hard part. The discipline that is required to take your suffering and put it under the microscope of God to see your suffering in the light of James chapter 1. That's the hard part. But when you put it under God's microscope, I promise you, the Bible promises you, you will have joy in your suffering. Let us pray.